0: Hello, everyone. Everyone, welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Tonight, we're going to be discussing early RA. I'm Jack Cushwood, room now. I'm joined by good friends and uh, experts in the field, people who have been working on um, and seeing patients like you and I with early RA. I'm going to ask our um, other panelists to introduce themselves. Marty,
1: I'm um, day. Uh, I'm Dr. Martin Bergman. I'm a clinical professor of medicine at Drexel University College of Medicine in Philadelphia, uh, private practice, and uh, a master of the American College of Rheumatology.
0: Excellent. Glenn?
2: Uh, Glenn Hazelwood, rheumatologist and associate professor of medicine in Calgary, Canada.
0: And I believe we're going to be joined shortly by Vivian Bykirk, who's trying to log on as we speak. Um, I'm Jack Cush in Dallas, Texas. Um, Tonight, we're going to be discussing um, RA, and specifically early RA. As you may have noticed this month, we have a campaign all month that's featuring a lot of content around the topic of RA. Um, It's called Hard Decisions in RA. We've got a lot of videos and blogs and and vlogs and whatnot, Um, and we hope that you can enjoy that content. Can you and hear me? Yep, we got you, Vivian. How are you? Yep. Yeah. C- can you hear us, Viv?
1: You may be on mute on her speakers.
0: Yeah, I can. Uh, we can. We can hear you, and we can see you.
3: Now it will work.
0: Okay. We're Bye. good. Y- you got us.
3: I you gotcha.
0: Okay. Hello. We, Vivian, we just did introductions. Why don't you introduce yourself?
3: Okay, well, I won't know who you are, but I'm Vivian Biker. I mean, I know who most of you are, obviously. I'm Vivian Bikirk and uh, I'm a, a rheumatologist, clinical researcher who is very interested in early RA and best outcomes for early RA. I work at HSS, but I'm a Canadian, and I uh, my heart is still in Canada.
0: Excellent.
3: <laughs> Actually, no, part of my heart is in Canada.
0: You can be bicoastal or across the border and... I can be
3: by 40-second parallel.
0: There you <laughs> go. Excellent. All right, so what I want to do is get into the subject where we're going to discuss um, referrals and uh, RA and uh, treatment approaches, and then also um, touch on where we stand with regard to uh, preclinical RA and the current approach. So mm. with that said, I'm going to get right into a survey that we did of the rheumatology readership uh, yesterday. And with, um, but one day of survey results, we uh, came back with these um, findings, these results. We had um, 211 responses from 43 countries, uh, half of which came from the United States. We asked a total of five different questions on again, referral and treatment of early RA. The first question at the top left, how many early RA patients with symptoms of less than 12 weeks do you see? And half see one or two a month. Um, a third see hardly any. Um, there's a few who see about one per week or more, uh, and then many by 7%. So 20% of the people who responded to this said, I mean, they see actually quite a bit, which is surprising. I'm not going to bring in on the bottom half of the screen, the US results. And it's really the same, maybe a little bit less of, 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 of US people. This looks like about 13% are seeing a lot of early RA, but most people, it's about 80% like it is worldwide, really see but a few patients. Um, I don't, don't think that that's surprising because that's answered in the second question. On top in the middle, do you have an early RA clinic or a facilitated plan for early RA referrals? And 57% worldwide said no. In the United States, 59%. Um, yes is the answer. It's somewhere between 14 and 26%. And then this is the delusionary answer, meaning I just say it's okay for the PCPs to call me, which means that ain't really happening. I agree that you'll do that. But by the way, you've also never sent a letter to any PCP saying call me when you have an early RA patient. So it's sort of a fallacy that again, the problem is most of us want to live in a situation where our clinics are full. The third question, and then we'll get into um, a panelist response to these questions. If you suspect RA based on swollen joints in a new patient, what serologies do you do? And amazingly, it doesn't matter where you live worldwide, everybody does a full serologic panel, really. I guess you're not paying for that because why would you do an ANA in someone who, in whom you suspect RA? I don't know. Some people do, and they can dance around that issue all they want, but that's wasteful. Um, and that's currently sort of against ACR recommendation. 40% say I do an RF and CCP. And then there's a few people do just CCP or uh, RA. My take on this is that um, there's a lot of, you know, shoot from the hip. Easy algorithm approach to early RA. If if I see them, but then again, I'm not seeing them. Marty, what do you think about this?
1: Uh, well, first of all, I think the uh, I think the responses are honest in that I think this is what people are more or less seeing and more or less are doing. So I, I think that they're you know I don't think people were sort of puffing and saying, "Oh, I see." 15 people, new RA every week, and uh, they're, they're all doing well. And I mean, to the to still, we'll get into the facilitating uh, clinics and the like in a little bit, I'm sure. When you talk about the serology, I'm going to give people a little bit of a pass just because of the way the question is worded. You su- suspect RA, right, but they have swollen joints. So there are situations, I mean, if you think if they're puffy joints, you could think it's systemic sclerosis. You could think it's lupus. So I'll give them a buy on that. I, I understand your point. If I think they have RA, they have RA. And I'm not getting all, I always refer to this as the Casablanca approach, you know, arrest all the usual suspects. And so I think that's what's done. But uh, like I said, I'll give them a little bit of a pass because of the way the question was, was written.
0: Can I ask the all the panelists, uh, do any of you have an early RA clinic? yep yeah we do the damn Canadians they're way ahead of us Marty but I'm
3: I mean, in America <laughs> well again
1: a lot of this has to do with the type of practice you have as a so I was a solo practitioner so having an early RA trying to block off time with RA when my when my wait list is three months it, it gets to be hard uh, I would be in the the PCP just needs to call group recognizing two things one they're not going to call and two when they do call almost always it's fibromyalgia so i mean that, that's the the only time i really got phone calls was i just want this person out of my office they're bothering me who can i dump this on and it was coming as fi- and it was a fibro if i had gotten early ra I would have been absolutely
0: ecstatic so, glenn do any of these results good good go go i mean it.
3: If you think from the PCP's perspective, the incidence of early RA is what? One in a thousand per year. So maybe they're seeing five a year. So you're not on their speed dial, unfortunately. Uh, And you're lucky if you remembered why you refer. And regarding the serology, I'm with Marty on that, you know, especially in an environment where you don't want to miss things. And they do have signs after all. And I have seen, you know, Yes, fibro in an earlier, I claimed, but I've also seen a couple of some lupuses. So I'd want that. And I agree with that. I don't agree in doing only RF or CCP early because there still is a 30% disparity. Uh, I think you need to do both. Uh, I think that's money well spent and it's also from for billing purposes important. Uh, but I think these people that are seeing lots of it are in uh, catchment areas where there are very few rheumatologists.
0: Glenn, do you do it differently? Where- well,
2: the one thing I'm I'm noticing here is it's uncommon for me to see a patient with less than 12 weeks of symptoms, to be honest. And the people I do see Are typically have really high disease severity, sort of the the preclinical RA patients, by the time they kind of filter through the family doctor and get referred, um, most of them, I would say, are beyond the the three-month window. And then we typically, just because we do have a big manpower issue, actually request, and you can, you know, argue the merits of this, but request that GPs do serology before with the referral because it really does help us triage the referrals so most of the people i see um have rf ccp and ana done um yeah. and uh and that's really to so because the referral information is often hard to rely on and it helps us flag those those patients that really do need to be seen more quickly
3: so this go, our, yeah
1: have, go ahead david
3: I agree with that, but you know, 30% of our patients are seronegative and the only way they get to us is having a lot of active disease. So we've shown that if you have super active disease and seronegative, you're more likely to get into at least our early RA study. Uh, And fortunately people who present that way tend to do better for some reason. It doesn't harm long-term outcomes.
1: I mean, I was going to say the same thing as, as Dr. Biker just said. Uh, you know, it's serologies are great when they're positive. But like I said 25% are seronegative. Rheumatoid factors and, and uh, CRPs are normal at the time of diagnosis in 45% of the cases. I mean, that's mm. uh, Ted Pinkus has done that study with Soka. Uh, So that's So just relying on serologies is a problem. Seeing people within 12 weeks. The fact of the matter is, I'm not even going to blame the PCP on that. You wake up in the morning, your hands are kind of stiff. Oh, I was achy. Oh, I raked too much. I drove too hard. I walked too far. I'm going to take an NSA. Oh, well, and then you just keep on filling in the blank with what it was. It's probably 12 weeks before they see the PCP.
3: That is correct.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, and the other the other thing is it often starts, and we've shown this in Canada as sort of an intermittent palindromic, like if you ask people when they are diagnosed with RA, when their symptoms started, it can be hard to define. And they often have these sort of stuttering course of palindromic symptoms prior to progressing into sort of full-blown RA.
0: So there is certainly the, the patient delay in seeking help. And it doesn't even begin with you. And then there's the PCP delay. I must say, I was doing a recent search on Twitter um, for a number of different things. And I just put in the search word rheumatology. It's gigantic, the amount of uh, rheumatology bashing that's out there in the world with the message being, I can't get in to see a rheumatologist, mm. meaning my primary care can't get me in. It's a long, it's a three months, it's a six month, it's a nine year. I mean, it's pretty sad. And and that goes to this, the first question, in the upper left here that Glenn started with, what's the average symptom delay on patients that you see, with most patients being three to six months. Um, six to twelve months is 40% worldwide and 32% in the US. It's very uncommon for people to have less than five weeks. It's like a sliver, three percent or less.
3: That's when you know someone.
0: Probably, exactly. Yeah. And
1: um and I'm gonna I, say that three to six months is still probably even optimistic. Yeah. From think, you're
0: right. I think you're right. I I can tell you that when I was in practice and looking for um, a to start an early RA clinic and two looking for early RA patients for clinical trials and making efforts in this regard, the simple thing that I did is I had a pad like this size pad that I printed out that had the patient's name on the top, a little bit of demographics, the reason for referral, send us your early RA patient and check a box. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and it said, And they had to just check a box, swollen joints, abnormal labs, whatever. It gave them 12 choices. In the bottom, it said, fax this page and the patient's notes and labs. You'd be shocked at how effective that was. Meaning, yes, unbelievable. Number one, I got way more consults than I ever did. Number two, all the consults I had came with full labs being done and even x-rays. And they were in the consult as opposed to oh, I'm referred here because my doctor has said I have an abnormal lab. Which one? I don't know. You know, where's the result? I don't know. You know, and this really, really worked. But it goes to the point of, I can't blame anyone else if I didn't do my job, which is give people the tools to appropriately refer. And if you really want these patients, every rheumatologist I know is a strong believer in early diagnosis, early intervention. Uh, We would love to be able to do that but we don't get the opportunity. That's the problem.
3: You know, now we have Epic and we have care everywhere and we can see in many, many cases, we can see everything that's been done for years uh, and what tests have been done. I think it's still that it's recognition by the patient that their jogging did not cause their finger to swell and and B. The del- the delay to get to a primary care should they need the referral now. Fortunately, this is being less and less of a requirement. Then the patient has to figure out what a rheumatologist is and figure out how to get to us, and they may or may not speak to a PCP if they have one. So you know there are there are new barriers.
0: You know the um I'm I do a lecture I started last year um, I'm trying to continually refine it on the future of RA, which has a lot about generative AI in it. And ge- this is where you have more efficient identification of people, A, with very rare diseases, you know, like the Milwaukee shoulder syndrome, never seen one of those, um, or um, early manifestations of common diseases, which in the primary care sector still are rare, like RA. Uh, and that's where in a system, this is gonna be very, very efficient and make it better for patients, and for the practitioners, and it's not that far away. It's like within the next 10 years and largely in bigger hospital systems like Epic as Vivian was saying.
1: And I also think though, this is a role, I mean, realistically, a, a role where we should be doing more education of the MP and PA community because whether we like want to admit it or not, patient comes to, to a PCP, at least in my community, they go to a PCP with joint complaints, they're not seeing the doctor. They're seeing the the other uh adjunctive of uh, the other people. They're not seeing the, the physician, they're seeing the others, and as a result, if they're not trained to recognize RA, it's never going to be recognized until they're basically you know wheelchair bound and then they're passed over to the uh, the PCP who says, Ew, I gotta get this out to a rheumatologist.
0: So I think, yes, better education, better referral rules. I mean, Paul Emery has been touting the same referral rules for years, which is a positive squeeze test, arthralgias, and, a, and an abnormal test. You, you know, you, you should be referred. I want to ask this question um, from Gail Kerr. It's a good one, and it's a common one. Most referrals are uh, for arthralgias and low positive RFS. Um, What percentage of those people end up having um, RA, Does anyone uh, have a good number on that?
3: I just answered that. Uh, I wasn't sure if we were going to take them verbally, but uh, you know, it, it's, it's the proverbial. It depends. So if the low positive is ten points above normal, even five points above normal, and their arthralgias are in their MCPs and wrists and MTPs, it's pretty high. Distribution's right. It's not normal. Uh, you know, I would take that one pretty seriously if it's back pain and, uh, you know, your upper limit is eight and it's a nine, that's pretty low.
0: I, but when she makes it polyarthrologist and low titer, it's still on the low side when it gets to be high titer, double positive, then, then it really takes a big jump right in yield, but um, in
3: the cri- di- you know, the criteria, yes.
1: Well, also in uh, a paper looked at that, and that, that's where they found that it was really those high-titer uh, double, you know, high-titer double positives were the ones who had, and they had the arthralgias. They also had uh, evidence of synovitis, which means they had RA. But uh, they were the ones who were most likely to respond to early abatacept,
3: right? And and that they more likely have to share right. the shared epitope. Right. But again,
1: you're now starting to say, you know, if you have somebody who's Strongly dual positive, has pain and tenderness over their joints and an MRI change in their MCPs. Uh, for me, That's why RA. are you doing that early on preclinical? That's just RA.
3: You know, I think the bigger problem is what people are calling pre-RA is really already RA. Once you have erosions, you have RA especially in the setting of CCP or, or RF, and especially in the uh, over 250 crowd, meaning the titers are super high.
0: Well, the criteria make you believe it's a dichotomous score-based crossing the threshold. And in fact, it's not, as we're all uh, agreeing here, it's it's a succession of events. And the more you add into the story, the more the diagnosis likelihood ratchets up. and And we're all going to have maybe different thresholds for when we're going to write that, that DMARD. Let's get to this question about therapy in early RA. This is the next question here. Um, which of the following do you rely on to diagnose? Uh, oh, no. Yeah. yeah, to diagnose? No, we're going back to the beginning. Um, what's, sorry. I. Oh, I know. Actually, I went ahead. So I, I missed this question here. Second question on the upper right. What's your preferred first DMARD in newly diagnosed seropositive RA, two swollen joints for three months. What's your preferred therapy? Doesn't seem like it matters whether you're in Canada or uh, South America or the United States.
3: Uh, We finally got the message across. (laughs)
0: 90% are using methotrexate. Um, A a sliver are using, um, 7% are using um, hydroxychloroquine. 1% are using a biologic or a jack. Um, While well, this is probably encouraging, I mean, I, always, I learned from Fred Wolf, rest in peace, Fred Wolf passed away this mm-hmm. a week ago, um, use your best DMARD first. So the idea of using your, your weakest DMARD, your safest DMARD, you know, some DMARD that spells easier, you know, why not use your best DMARD first? And that is the answer here. I'm a little concerned that we're all treating the same disease, which is not the same disease, the same way
1: it's where you start. And where do you start? Uh, well, you're gonna start one where, frankly, what's on my formulary? I mean, there is this myth that physicians choose. They don't. We go no. the formulary. <clears throat> Two is, methotrexate is an effective drug. I mean, you can get people into a low disease state slash remission 25% of the time. And, you know, I, they've shown the clinical trial. I have data from my own practice. I can do it about 25% of the time with an inexpensive drug, has a long history, we know how it works, we know its toxicities, we know how to monitor it. Uh, so why wouldn't we start with the most effective DMARD that we have before we go on to the others that, well, you can't get anyway until you've failed methotrexate?
3: I honestly think <laughs> we need to rename methotrexate to awesome drug. If you think <laughs> And you know, you were telling your patient you were going to go on awesome drug. What do you think their uh, anticip- anticipatory uh, anxiety might be? I guess that's a double, uh, similar word. But you're more, much less likely if you look up methotrexate. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's tarnished. It's still it's a cancer. A threat, drug,
0: first of all, it's scary.
2: It's yeah
3: scary. absolutely. I,
2: I would I would almost view this as, you know, I know this is percentage of respondents, but you know if if I think of a hundred people with earlier with this presentation, maybe ninety percent I would start on methotrexate, but there is a proportion who just aren't going to take methotrexate and, um, and you can try to convince them it's, I don't know, I find it's around ten percent. Um, where hydroxychloroquine um, might be something that they will take, and uh, so I thought that was interesting.
3: Well, oh, here's the there... paradox: is that we did, we were part of the Stop RA trial, randomized control study trial in pre-RA of hydroxychloroquine versus placebo, and of course the consent said you might, you may go blind from this medication. Do you think I could get a single patient on that to, into that trial? No. <laughs> Uh, on the other hand, uh, if I said uh, you're going to go on awesome drug and if you lose hair, we'll boost your nutrition and it'll probably just come back, they're probably going to take awesome drug. No, I,
1: yeah.
0: I agree. Um, is there a if scenario where any okay of you
1: hydroxychloroquine? I'm sorry, Jack. But uh, with, with hydroxychloroquine, yeah, that's okay if I really don't think they have RA. If someone has. You know somebody is there. They've seen me. They have two swollen MCPs. They're they're in clearly in discomfort. You know I use the rapid three, but they show they show that they're doing poorly and is and I think it's an inflammatory disease. I'm hard pressed to say. Oh, let's give you hydroxychloroquine unless I I really just
0: don't think you have anything. It's oh,
3: I think, yeah. Is I think there, is there
0: go, go ahead? Just John. let me ask this: Is there a scenario where First off, for the audience, um, we would love for you to join the discussion and give us and put your questions in here that we can further um, discuss. Put your questions in the Q&A box. Um, that would be ideal like uh, Dr. Kerr did. Um, but I wanna ask the panelists, is there a scenario where you would use more aggressive therapy than methotrexate, either a jack or a combination or biologic in someone who's presenting to you with early RA?
2: Uh, we we couldn't use uh, biologic or JAK inhibitor. That would be uh, just out of uh, funding, but for sure combination therapy and really based on disease uh, activity.
0: And is that the game you play so that you can get to biologics quicker? You put them on triple DMARD and so that maybe you might be able to use a TNF inhibitor at week 12?
2: I know a lot of people do, but I actually think there's a role for it, even if you're not, if even if that's not the intention. And I'll use triple therapy with the dis- sort of discussion with patients. Once you're in remission, we can always back off on the medications. And, it, you know, if you sell it to people that way, that this is kind of, you know, I know we're giving you a lot of treatment. The goal is to get you into remission as fast as possible. And then once you are, we can start backing off on things. Um, I find people buy into it a lot more and actually um, – a lot of people prefer that over starting with methotrexate, if you don't, if it doesn't work, we have to add in things, it's delaying things, et cetera. So.
3: We're making a lot of assumptions here. Uh, The adherence research, you know, says people, well, used to throw their paper prescriptions in the trash going out the doctor's door. Uh, We don't know how much they're actually trying or, or doing or say they will. And I think the real key is, and to Glenn's point, or or Dr. Hazelwood's point, is that um, we're starting these meds. You need to see people often in the first few months, even if it's a quick check-in, because they need to tell you what their worries are, and you need to ask, what are they doing? Or what are you experiencing?
0: So let me weigh in on this. uh, Dr. Bikirk is referring to A well done, very large consumer report study that says people who go to their doctor for an antibiotic, when given an antibiotic, less than 50% fill the prescription. And we certainly have a lot of non adherence data, especially in lupus, but even in RA. But the question is do they really? I think, in my own experience, I think that Vivian, your solution is perfect. Bring them back, see them more quickly, and reinforce the need for the therapy. But if I bring them back, in three months, um, half the patients are not doing well. And I think a significant amount of that is they're not doing what I told them to do.
3: I know.
1: And I will just put in a plug for disease activity measurement. And I don't care which one you choose, you know, right. I I did the rapid three, so I have my love for it, but I don't care which one you use. But if you, if I give you prescription and you decide not to take it, and then I bring you back in six weeks and you're doing great. Well, more power to you you were right you didn't need the medicine right on the other hand if you come back six weeks and you're doing horribly you look. Like, wow you're doing horribly what's up did you are you taking the methotrexate are you having trouble with it what's the story so for me the i think disease activity measurement is also a way that we can get a handle on are our patients taking it or not
0: so uh Dr. Kerr asked the question about what's the documentation for a two or combination DMARD approach, and uh, it could be FINRACO, it could be uh, a Cobra um, Best. Um, there are a number of studies that show that it, it is appropriate. I don't think that those studies were segmented out into you know high risk, low risk patients and that kind of profiling. But if you look at the patients that went in those studies. They were all high risk. you know, they all had, you know, 30 tender joints, 14, 15 swollen joints, high really abnormal labs. They were a mess. So it would have been appropriate for them to get um, combination a more aggressive therapy than single drug, God forbid even placebo. I think there's plenty of evidence to support that. Anybody uh, like to look at any one data set in guiding them uh, in, in this situ- situation?
1: I mean, I'm blocking on the study, but it was the, the head-to-head methotrexate etanercept versus triple therapy.
2: Yeah, there's a tier in the trials. Yeah, The trials. And, yeah. you
1: know, I have issues with the methodology, but, but you know, if you're looking at something that you could show a reviewer, uh, triple therapy right off the bat did just as well from those two studies.
3: Well, yes and yeah, yes. I mean, and
1: I'm yes. saying if you want yes. to show it to a reviewer. Uh, I I have issues with the studies how they're done. I mean, we can get into that, but when you're, you know, the question was.
3: No, you, you could say if you if you want to get fifty percent better, they're the same.
2: Right. Okay. Um, and quicker too, like the uh, the one the main advantage. That was the advantage? Was, right. Yeah, it it happened.
3: Quicker to
2: starting was, with methotrexate and then escalating to triple therapy.
3: But the ACR seventies were better for uh methotrexate as were was the reduction in radiographic progression, which just says there are a group of people that probably need a TNF inhibitor. There are others who will do well with a combination.
1: And there are the others who will do fine on methotrexate monotherapy. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So uh, Kelly Portnoff basically goes down this path by saying uh, that he would consider a biologic as first-line therapy in women of reproductive age who are not taking reliable contraception or entertaining pregnancy in the next few months, that a biologic may be the better uh, of all the choices, uh, one, for faster onset, and two, uh, a safe, maybe a known safety profile. Um, and, and any oral meds you might take really might have a long, drawn-out effect where you have to close the gap with steroids. And that may not be the ideal situation for anyone early on. Um,
3: That's a whole but- other issue. Uh, the, the thing is, is, you know, in those contemplating pregnancy or we'll call it have a high probability or a decent probability of pregnancy, if they have one PIP joint, I might give hydroxychloroquine and I do a pretty good exam. But if they have three or four joints, I agree with that.
1: Right. And that's the one where uh, I, I've had good luck with it. Uh, you don't do it a lot. If you don't do it all the time, you're actually more effective. And that's where you actually call the medical director and say, hi, you know, this is what's going on with this patient. And uh, this may sound, for those people who know me, uh, you, this may sound a little bit weird, but they're actually, when you get them a one-on-one on a phone, they're actually pretty reasonable people.
0: Well, that's arguable. So, um, and how? Sorry, I couldn't help that. Uh, the nothing's been said here about steroids. Early RA patients who present get tons of steroids in the primary care sector, and yes, in rheumatology audiences. I w- I'm a disciple of Paul Emery. Says you know, early disease shows up, might be RA, not yet RA. You know, it's a high dose uh, intramuscular steroid along with you know a tapered dose and. Let's see what comes back since half of them are going to go into remission. Do none of you have a, a substantial role for steroids in early management? Glenn? Yeah.
2: I, I'll do it in the less than 12 weeks, especially the really early where you're not sure if it's just, you know, the less than six weeks sort of person that shows up in a merge. That's kind of a situation where I'll do it because it could be a, you know, a, could be whatever, right? It could be a viral induced arthritis, etc. cetera. But in somebody who's usually in my clinic, who who has, as we mentioned, symptom duration longer than that, uh, I I'm really hesitant to just give steroids without a DMARD because I think a lot of things get better with steroids, uh, other than inflammatory arthritis, and um, it just we use it all the time. We use sort of IM pretty frequently when we're starting DMARDS, but I'm very very hesitant to do it without starting a Dmart at the same time.
3: Uh, because I think patients think I love it them. and then
2: they come back and want more and right, then they, right. they, they, and they you won't have take methotrexate. To, they yeah.
3: might've taken awesome drug, but they won't take methotrexate.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: And the other thing that I've been doing, I learned this from Ted Pinkus years ago, which is, uh, I don't use 10 and 20 milligrams of prednisone. I use, Two and a half milligrams of prednisone. If I really want to pound somebody, I'll give them five. <laughs> and they I've number one oh, I'm finding effective. And number two is you don't get this. I want that drug because I don't get that. Woo-hoo, I feel great.
0: Right. Well, this is crossing over into this issue of what to do with um uh preclinical RA, but let me um show. Well, I'll let me show you the results of a preclinical RA survey we did two or three months ago on Room Now. Um, this was done in, in, in June, late June, uh, after are 246 responses. How many new, again, remember, I think it was like two thirds of people saw very few early RA as defined, right? And here we're asking how many new polyarthrologists preclinical RA patients do you see in a month? And it's 57% see one to four, 24% see five or more. What? I mean, these numbers are... I don't know where recon- this is. From. I don't know who these people are in the United <laughs> States. It's the same. So it's not like these are, you know, those those crazy people who live in Canada. This is that pretty much everybody does this. But which may, may... I guess this is a lot of consultation, referrals for arthrologists, and maybe that's what people are are, are considering yeah. here. The problem that's the really- Go ahead, David.
3: The problem with, with preclinical slash early, uh, you know, tra- transition to early RA is that there's a lot of tendon disease, and uh, I'm not sure people appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I can see that um, you know that preclin that RA may be called preclinical because there's less articular and more tendon. So if you get extensor carpi ulnaris tenosynovitis in pre pre-RA or early-RA, that's like mnemonic of RA almost. Uh, people don't think about that.
1: I mean, I'm going back to what I said with the phone calls, because this is where I would classify those patients. This is a person, I'm getting the phone call for polyarthralgia. My patient has lots of aches and pains, please see. Now, how many of those actually have an inflammatory process that's a different story. So if you're asking the question, how many new people with lots of aches and pains are you seeing per month, it is going to be a lot. How many of those actually have what I would consider to be, quote, preclinical RA, unquote, It's probably one in 100.
0: Yeah, I probably would have changed this or had this colored significantly if I threw in uh, a CCP positivity, you know, into this uh, equation. Yeah. So, but let's see what happens when you ask the question: um, What do you need to diagnose preclinical RA? And there's a strong reliance on seropositivity, both uh, worldwide and, and in the U.S. Less, re, less a requirement for the number of joints, and nobody else really looks at anything else. So that's.
1: So, so Jack, did you write? It was this the way because I see number of tender joints, and I don't really care about tender joints. For me, it's a right. number of swollen joints.
0: Well, it's oh, no, no, no. This is the person. Um, um, well, yes, for rheumatologists, it would be the number of swollen joints. But um, yeah, I, I wrote it as tender because, um, and we could argue. I'm a big fan of tender joints um, I, because it's the same between me, my nurse practitioner, the primary care, and the resident. When it comes to swelling, only you have the magical fingers of an ultrasound machine that can detect. You know that. That subtle synovitis. So well, this is
2: preclinical. So is the first too. thing
1: to respond to placebo in clinical trials, but we won't go there.
2: Okay. And this is preclinical, so people right. with swollen joints wouldn't be. Uh,
3: my hard. and my guess is, if they're tender and other hands, and you got your hands on them, you'd find swollen. So.
0: Uh, you know, I'm always surprised at that, even amongst rheumatologists who are skilled. How do you manage preclinical RA in your practice? Half of the people say symptom management, a little bit more in the United States. Um, uh, 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 25% say, I'm going to observe and retest. And really, um, in the United States, it's like 14% say, I'm going to treat with some drug. And in the rest of the world, it's like 24%. I'm going to treat with some drug. Um, Right now, most people are really quite conservative in something that they think is preclinical RA, which means, as Glenn said, they don't yet have a swollen joint or swollen joints Fair and enough. they don't meet criteria. The one situation
2: uh, that's in, we I kind of mentioned it earlier in this preclinical RA, but the patient who comes in, which I see not infrequently, where they give a really good history of having what sounds like this palindromic arthritis, but you see them and they're doing fine, and you can't, uh, you know, you're supposed to document synovitis um, to make a diagnosis, but you're really relying on the history of that someone gives you, and in that situation, I do treat some of those people, particularly if their CCP is positive. Um, uh, so I don't know what what you guys think about that because that's that's
0: actually. Something I see not infrequently. Well, the CCP is sort of like, well, there's so many things that are important, you know, family history, you know, number of swollen joints. If you have, and if you don't have some number of swollen joints, even even number of joints has some predictive value, but CRP, ultrasound MR, evidence of inflammation, um, you know, smoker status, um, you know, they start adding on. But to me, it is the CCP. And that actually is, well, before we get into the SCCP, I asked this question, what do you need um, to better manage preclinical RA? Half the respondents said I need information on how to treat aggressively and when to treat aggressively. That's 50%. 13%, I need to know when to just treat symptomatically. Uh, and then only 15% are looking for a criteria and 20% are looking for um, some better testing or rules on testing. I think that this says that as much as we talk a lot about and we've seen a lot of preclinical RA studies, um, there's a lot of known about what's important, how to proceed, next steps, and I think that leads to the conservatism we've seen in the survey results. What do you think?
3: Well, yeah, I think, you know, again, there's a variation. If the arthralgias are in the MTPs, MCPs, PIPs, and they have seropositive positive. I mean, I'd probably go so far as to ultrasound them and look for erosions because there's a good probability they'll have one. But, you know, if it's very vague arthralgias or perhaps even fatigue and malaise and some achiness and, uh, but still a high positive CCP, the odds that they're going to develop RA in three years is still around 30%. So, you know, there is a watch and wait depending on the patient.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I agree. There's this is all the because, like you said, it's 30% will go on to progress, which means if I were to just start throwing drugs at everybody at that first visit, I'm treating 70% of people who don't have RA. So I don't want to do that. Uh, this is, uh, I, and you know, what, what you describe, it, you know, the, the they have swollen joint, they have erosions on ultrasound, they have MRI findings. Well, again, that's where we started. You and I both. Uh, That's not preclinical RA. But it
3: still comes under. If you never did those tests, you wouldn't know that. And you know, we all go by our gut sometimes in this.
1: Right. So you have to know where to draw. And the other problem is, so far the studies have not been impressive. I mean, the uh, avatasep studies are the only ones that have shown something to me the rotuximab studies didn't show anything and the uh, hydroxychloroquine studies didn't show
3: anything. The the ABBA, it looked like you needed to give it again, but it it did appear to do something. But
1: I'm saying it's the only one that showed any kind of positivity in my book. Yeah, and the methotrexate, yeah.
2: It just didn't show this. As soon as you stop it, I mean, it's good while they're taking it, but as soon as it doesn't delay, sort of prevent the progression into R.A
3: they are treating the disease. But that that study was done before the criteria. That was the prompt study.
2: Yes. And, yeah. yeah. Um,
3: when you looked at, at the criteria for that study, they were almost the ACR criteria.
0: So one of the um, uh, docs in the audience asked the question about those stop RA patients who didn't get RA after three years of follow-up. I mean, this is sort of like you're seeing pre- preclinical RA and you do treat them. You don't treat them. What's your, you know, what's your rules on, on return to clinic? Um, Vivian, what, 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 do you do?
3: You know, depending on the picture and depending on if there is any evidence of evolution, it's like come back in three months, six months, one year, depends. Uh, here's my phone number. Um, you know, please call and I tell them what to look for. Uh, but If there's nothing to indicate that they're gonna convert anytime really soon, I will do the watch and wait as well.
0: Yeah, to me, the smoking gun is the rheumatoid factor. Here's um, uh, a study that I, um, this is, um, well, actually it's not this one, the next one. This is a a cross-sectional study about referral um, and these are people in the Vermont medical school system, a thousand patients referred, I think in a two month period, um, 85% of these were from, um, primary care doctors. Um, they evaluated only six, 700. So it's only 70% got a consult, um, slightly bit of a problem there. Uh, and only 26% of those had inflammatory arthritis, half had OA, 21% had fibromyalgia on the right you see the answer to the question, maybe Dr. Kerr's question, is being referred. They don't really talk about the labs. A lot of people have had labs that 18% actually evolved into having uh, RA. They showed in the consults that they were woeful as far as documentation of a joint exam or key things um, like the duration of arthrologists or morning stiffness. The time to, del- to the actual rheumatology appointment was a median of nine months. But even despite weeks, nine weeks, nine weeks. Sorry, even that's though
3: fantastic. The,
0: uh, that's actually not bad. You're right, but um, but despite some of these things, um, they were very good at ordering ANAs in half the cases, rheumatoid factor in 38%, CCP and B27 in far less patients. But is this a good story for? Are we doing good with referrals here in the United States? I I don't think we are.
2: You I know, think there's for, a lot of yeah. I was Go just going to say gaming, I don't know I want to say, gaming the system, but we when family docs will learn what to write on a referral to try to get people seen more quickly, I think in some cases. Um and this is why so in where I practice, we have a centralized referral, so all the remote, all the referrals come into one center and then get distributed. Um so they have a huge volume of referrals coming in a day and that's really why why they rely, you know, on the lab tests, and it's not so much that you know people who who are seronegative negative won't be seen. It's just to avoid missing the people who have zero who have real disease and putting them on a wait list. Um, you know, if they have uh, a vague history and really high uh, rheumatoid factor CCP.
1: Right. I guess the theory there is better to catch some. With obvious disease and miss a bunch, then miss a whole bunch, period.
2: Well, and it's interesting. I was just thinking, Jack, when you were talking about the AI and sort of how that will impact this. And I could see that more testing that could lead to more tests because there the algorithms would have an objective thing, you know, an x ray that they could read or a test that could. Um, So it'll be, it's interesting whether that'll, you know, those, if that happens, that whether there'll be more testing to kind of feed into these uh, algorithms.
0: Yeah, that's the one of the problems with AI and making these decisions and making recommendations is they are going to be very algorithm uh, driven. Uh, And you could see that more testing uh, and maybe useless testing emanates from some of that um, yeah.
1: And it's also done, you have to remember, the programming is done by a human. Mm-hmm.
3: Maybe. Oh, yeah. You know, if someone comes in with fibromyalgia and their CCP is over 250 and their RF is a 100 and whatever, I'm going to take that patient very seriously because there's fibromyalgic presentations. There's also polymyalgic presentations. Uh, you know, nothing... <laughs> If it were really simple, we wouldn't need to be rheumatologists. But it's so, not.
0: So you're driven by the CCP. Here's a study from Paul Emery's group. They have an early arthritis uh, uh, um, clinic, obviously, 780 referred patients. Only 3% were CCP positive, but 45% of those progressed to RA. And on top right, you can see that line is not dropping off, or people who are no symptoms and lower, no tighter. And the ones that are dropping off the fastest are the people who have hands and feet symptoms and have high titers. The predictors of developing inflammatory arthritis, ninefold higher if you have high CCP, two to fourfold higher with hand and foot pain. And then of the CCP negative people, only 0.93% progress. So in their algorithm, you know, you can start. And then if you do a CCP, if it's high titer, you sort of get an expedited evaluation and referral. If it's a low titer, then you get a lot of questions and routine referral, and that seems to make some sense. Um, You know, if you're you're negative, you know, not much is going to happen.
3: They, uh, I don't know how soon this is, but when I started doing early RA, which was in like 2001 or something, I went to see that clinic. I went to hang out there and and see what happened. And there was a lot of OA, like generalized OA, because that's common or, or but it wasn't a whole lot more common the trick they did was the mcp and the mtp squeeze test it was a very quick way of deciding who was going to get a longer assessment
0: yeah two really good points from people who really know john tesser says he relies on patients taking photos of swollen joints in between visits yeah you know i i, am, I must say that um Eight out of every 10, maybe seven out of every 10 photo a patient shows me of a swollen joint is like a, okay, if you say it's swollen, but it's really not in my view. Um, but I pay, I give it full respect that it deserves. Uh, I think that is a valuable way of picking up uh, early disease. Um, and and another, another comment is that preclinical RA is someone with serologies and no symptoms uh, and uh, maybe back pain. So this is something that uh, Kevin Dean has also weighed weighed in on. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think preclinical RA is only preclinical RA if you have really high titer rheumatoid factor and a first degree relative. If you have no symptoms, you know, it's just a worrisome patient with a 40 to 60% chance of having RA. I'm saying high titer or multiple autoantibodies. That so, you know, if you have any CCP, yeah, 30% is the right number, but that does ratchet up. Um, and, you know... Looking for a reason to worry, um, so seeing them is the best thing you can do. Um, do you think? think Go ahead
2: to me, this really argues for more like more CCP testing at the level of the GP because it's the patients you know, if you cost this out on a population, if you miss one person, you know, if you miss a small number of people who actually have RA, and I know I still see people who, if they had had a CCP done two years ago when they had symptoms, they probably would have got referred to rheumatology. So, yeah.
3: It, it, there are parts of the world where you can order a rheumatoid factor or a CCP. Yeah. You can't get both. And there's, to me, I mean, we're talking about a disease that will cost a certain number, uh, you know, to the health system, millions of dollars. Uh, and people are quibbling with arthralgias and maybe small joint arthralgias, in affecting you know, doing these tests.
1: And you can't walk into a cardiologist's office without getting an ECG. But ECG, we're going to worry about putting right dollars blood. And test. Lipids. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> well, do you think it would be better if there was point of care testing, if there was a finger stick and a home test that that we'd be more likely to see these patients?
3: absolutely
1: i
2: think i think
3: so
1: yeah. you know do you are you are you waking i can see the commercial are you waking up stiff in the morning do you have pain in your hands well try the new room <laughs> now <laughs> and you, you, know, you stick your finger and if it's okay boxes. we're all
3: on this patent all right <laughs>
0: yeah okay <laughs> yeah. um well i mean I, I i do think that there would be a, good, a big use for it in lots of places in primary care and and docking the boxes, um, even in in your office and and whatnot. So, um, it should it should be done. Uh, I don't know why it hasn't already been done. So, um, all well, right. You go to the
1: jail for that kind of stuff.
0: No, absolutely not. I mean, there's uh, more no, testing no, no. for <laughs> HIV and COVID and and now A1C and you name it. I mean, it's all out there for um, better. Well, let me ask you this: Do you think that we would do better if if there was a large scale effort to do telehealth with early presenting symptoms?
1: I'm not a big telehealth fan. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm, I may be in the minority here, but uh, I did not find it uh, for me. Telehealth was great if the patient was doing great, or if the patient was doing horribly, but I couldn't assess anyone in between.
3: Uh, You know, it took time because it takes time because you have to explain to them exactly what to do to convince you one way or the other. And, um, you know, that may be where our rapids, our RAFQs, our promise measures, or, you know, something is going to tell us.
0: Yeah, I am a big telehealth fan. I do think it's a great screening tool. It's a great tool for people who are established a stable disease. Uh, and it's a great way to get deliver cost effective care. I think you can do effective joint assessments. Um, yeah, things that are clearly swollen, you can see it from, you know, across the supermarket. Um, why shouldn't I be able to do it? Um, you know, on a zoom call, but there, yeah. there are
3: and the patients, where- you know, they just want to call and get some questions answered. Uh, you know, making them travel some distance or some amount of traffic, it's a problem.
0: Yeah. Telehealth does have lots of problems, including setting expectations with patients about what this visit is. This is, a reg, you know, this is a regular visit. This is not me calling you for a social how you doing, you know, and you're going to be in my office next week wanting to get examined. No, no, I just did that last week. You know, all kinds of little things like that. Um, I'd like to end with uh, each of you, maybe imparting some wisdom on the audience. On you know, what would be your greatest advice about um, making uh, doing better at early RA? My big pitch, and I kind of said this in the beginning, is I think if you really want to see RA, I think you should get a mailing list from the hospital system that you're associated with. Send everybody a note saying I want to see your early RA patients. Positive squeeze test. Do CCP and rheumatoid factor. I'll see him over lunch. I'll stay after work. Um, send me those patients. And yeah, you might get a whole bunch of you know fibromyalgia. You'll get an occasional Churg Strauss syndrome or something. But you will get um, more early RA than you've ever had before.
3: That is true.
0: Yeah. Mario, is be, it, well, okay, what's ahead, your man. advice? If, mine. Ahead, uh, yeah.
3: Mine is uh, be careful what you're messaging the patient. When you are saying, oh, I don't know if I'm going to give you methotrexate, let's try a little Plaquenil. I mean, what are you telling that patient about methotrexate? I saw someone like that last week and and they they're, they're both were hesitant and the patient's hesitancy drove bad decisions. So I think telling the patient about the disease is as important as discussing the pros and cons of the therapy.
0: Yeah, Marty, what's your message? I mean,
1: I always talked about the side effects of disease as well as the side effects. Yeah,
3: exactly.
1: Uh, But getting to your question of how do we get people in earlier, because that's what we're trying, boy, uh, I don't have a good answer, because even when you have these questionnaires, majority of of rheumatology practices are absolutely booked out three plus, if you can get a rheumatologist if you can call someone and say, I have a sick person and they need to see if you can get them in, in under two months, you're a magician. So it's, uh, I don't ha- I think the solution is we need more rheumatologists. You know, right now we're the heart, one of the hardest, if not the hardest fellowship to get into. And it's not as if we're not getting applicants. So it seems to me if we have applicants and it's difficult, you get more spots. We get more rheumatologists, we get people in sooner. I mean, yeah, it would
3: cost more money to the system. But honestly, we need to have less clicking on Epic. Yeah. It takes time.
0: Lynn, what's your advice? Um,
2: maybe just on the sort of a bunch of these treatment decisions we talked about is setting the, the sort of long-term expectations of what treatment is going to look like when you're first starting treatment um, with the acknowledgement that you know, if you're if you're starting triple therapy, if you're starting subq methotrexate, if you're deciding to treat preclinical RA, that you know this isn't for life, and the goal is to get people better as quickly as possible, and then you can always talk about reducing medications, and that you'll work with patients on that. I think um, hearing that message that you know what they decide now doesn't have to be um, what they're going to be on for their life, and Every patient wants to be on the least amount of medication uh, while controlling their disease. So that's one thing I found helpful is just talking
3: to patients about that. I, I use, I often, if if there's hesitancy and, and a lot of indecision, I use the phrase, it's a date, not a marriage. Uh, and it's exactly what you're speaking to. to, to plan. And,
1: and I would just put in another plug for measuring disease activity.
3: Absolutely. Because Absolutely.
1: if you're measuring, if you have, and you tell the patient why you're measuring and how you're measuring, they come in and if they are doing better, they're doing better. And if their numbers are bad, you can tell them, well, I'm not telling you you're doing bad. You're telling me you're doing bad based on what you're telling me what I'm finding. And it makes, I think it makes the discussion a lot easier to get people to take medications when they understand why they have, that they have active disease and why it's important.
0: All right, folks, I want to thank our panelists for a really insightful discussion. I think this is all very practical, very uh, useful. I think we've highlighted some of the, the challenges yet ahead of us. I want to remind the audience to follow all the content on, on RA this month. We've got amazing blogs and videos that are being posted every day. Watch for those. Um, next week, Tuesday Night Rheumatology is all about methotrexate, uh, where um Mike Weinblatt and Joel Kremer are going to host a panel where they're going to take apart what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong in methotrexate. That's next Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night.
3: Thanks, all. Thank you. Bye, Bye, everyone.